Welcome to the 1CA podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to talk about working the last three feet of foreign relations. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working on ground with partner nations and their people. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll have both of those in the show notes. So how was, how was COVID? <laughs> oh, man. That COVID groan comes from Major Jamie Critelli, an agriculturalist from the 353 Civil Affairs Command. He and Captain Gustavo Ferreira, also from the unit and an agricultural economist from the USDA, co-wrote a series of assessments on Taiwan and China food stocks in peacetime and supply during conflict. So I interviewed both for a two-part series. First, we start with Jamie Critelli talking about Taiwan's agriculture. He also talks a little bit about the 38 Golf Program and the FXSP. And then next week, we host Gustavo Ferreira on China food stocks. We also talk a little bit about the USDA and Civil Affairs Ag programs that work with diplomats, aid workers, field agents, and with the military to help people in partner nations improve their food stocks and stability in their region. So stay tuned. I don't know. If, have you heard much on um, the 1CA podcast? I haven't. No. Oh, shame on you. <laughs> I haven't. I'm completely blind. Oh, man. So many people that should be dialing in. I get these great speakers coming on. I mean, in my defense, I'm not on any social media anymore. So if it's posted there, I wouldn't see it. Yeah. Did you throw your wooden shoes into the machine? I had been on Facebook for 10 years and my elapsed time actually in the app was over a year when I was like, okay, I have better things to do with my life than be online checking out sure. other people's pictures. So, yeah. Um, do you have any discussions about CA doing agricultural assessments overseas? Sure. We were asked to prepare a briefing on what the food security situation is in Taiwan. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, can you give me a little background on that? Absolutely. Taiwan literally has no more than six months of food on hand. And um, so we started to research, well, what could we do to better prepare Taiwan? And what could the military do in the event of a conflict to resupply Taiwan? And it gets very, very challenging very quickly because with Taiwan just just over 100 miles from the Chinese mainland, um, you know, the density of, of ships and, and aircraft in the event of a, of a naval blockade or embargo is, is going to prevent any U.S. naval vessel from reaching the shores with a resupply. So we looked at a number of different scenarios. Of course, the, the obvious ones are conservation, stockpiling diversifying the food chain for Taiwan and identifying ways for the average Taiwanese citizen to eat lower on the food chain. And also started to look at some novel methods of production, such as hydroponics and aquaponics put together, local production of, of algae as a feedstock for fish, aquaponic production, and then the waste from the fish being used for hydroponic uh, vegetable production. 
Right. Doesn't offset 100% of what the Taiwanese would need, but it, it definitely puts them on a good path. There was also some historical context for the Taiwanese coming out of COVID. A lot of people in Taiwan did not trust the food supply chains during COVID from 2020 through 2022. So they started producing hydroponics and aquaponics in their, in their apartments. Uh, and they were able to decrease the overall demand for imported fish by three to five percent per year. What we also were considering was since Taiwan is quite sophisticated in terms of automation, to revamp their civilian wastewater treatments in a way so that algae could be grown and used as a fertilizer and as a feedstock for other portions of their local food supply. It would be decentralized and it, it would be at scale and to allow more time for the U.S. to intervene in the event of a conflict. Which it sounds like is what you're trying to do is get it to where they can survive off the six months while shifting to an internal system to build more food to extend that time. Yes. Taiwan is quite interesting. I mean, like most industrialized countries, the amount of land available for agriculture is decreasing. It's just shy of half of a percent per year. But what's different about Taiwan is in other industrialized countries where the farm size is drastically increasing, in Taiwan, it continues to decrease in size. Is it being lost to urbanization? There's quite a bit of it, yes. Yeah, unfortunately. I saw a lot of that in California as well. I mean, they have industrial style farming, so they probably have maximized the amount of yield that comes off their land, right? They have not. Um, okay. What we're seeing is also that the yield is is pretty much flat, and it's it's hmm. been flat uh, since the 80s. Again, you know, many of the solutions we use in the Western world to achieve better yields, you, know, you would you would require investments into machinery and technology to deliver at scale. But the smaller and parcels become, the harder it becomes to actually achieve those scale effects in Taiwan. You'd almost have to do a nationalization of the farming infrastructure if they were ever under embargo in order to activate that type of scale, is what it sounds like you're saying. Correct. It's a risk that they're so small and decentralized. On the other hand, it's a massive opportunity because then no one particular field or farm has the, the critical mass. And if it was disrupted... I feel the Taiwanese would still be able to feed themselves. Right. Which would be another major risk if there's a large-scale embargo blocking imports is that they would also set fire to any any fields that were dry to destroy yes. harvest, right? Correct. We also looked at you know, what would be the most opportune time of the year. It would be sometime between May and October in any given year. They've just planted or they're getting ready to harvest. Uh, it's also the monsoon period. So there's that. Yeah, which would make being at sea tough. Right. Another issue that we raised in that the massive dependency Taiwan has on U.S. imported grain. They're a very small country. It's the size of Maryland and Rhode Island combined. 
but yet compared to the other 200 nations in the world, they're the 16th largest importer of food in the world. You would need something like 54 Panamax-sized vessels a year loaded with grain to satisfy what they need as a feedstock for the animals on their island. Right. It's a massive amount. And now, if they were to reduce the amount of animals and went more towards a vegetarian diet in the middle of an embargo, that would extend their time though, right? Absolutely, it would. They wouldn't be happy about it, but it would give them... <laughs> yeah. I mean, because a Panamax vessel is the largest, that's the that's, largest freighter in the world, that's, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> and when we say Panamax vessels, I mean, these are not vessels that traditionally carry grains. Right. You're talking... You're talking vessels that would carry 12,000 20-foot shipping containers. Right. But Taiwanese port structure is still a bit immature for ag imports. There's only one port in the north set up to receive barges of grain. The rest, what happens is a Panamax-sized vessel or smaller arrives with containers full of grain, which have been backhauled from the U.S., and that's how they handle it. So... They can take in grain and containers, but right. it's just the, it's, it's a volume game. It's yeah. Really... Well, it's a volume game versus um, someone who's also blockading the ports. So you have to do insertion style supplies. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's going to, that would say that's a tough, uh, that's a tall order. Yes. The other aspect that we looked at was how much logistic infrastructure would be needed to strictly resupply the Taiwanese military with food. And so we used some planning factors. You know, we went with the fact that the average Taiwanese citizen is eating 1,800 calories a day. It's a bit lower than what we consume in the U.S. And based on that, if we just resupplied each soldier in Taiwan with one MRE per day, so that's about 1,400 calories, it would require right. 99 shipping containers per day to feed their military. So again, in contested waters and airspace, how do you bring that in? Yeah. So it's, it's definitely going to be a challenge, and I'm, and I'm hopeful that they're planning for this. Well, it sounds like your first discussion on how to get them to mobilize local farming and community farms is probably the smartest choice. The thing is with local community gardens is that it creates variety because not everyone's going to try and grow the same thing versus a large farm. And that would help to keep people healthy because if everyone's just living on corn or soy, you're going to have problems with health. Right. So that does make sense as the first bet. And plus that extra variety, if the farm fields got assaulted, would still be able to sustain the population a little bit longer. Correct. The work that we're doing today is a direct culmination of some of the precursor work we did a, a couple of years ago. We were just starting to write articles. In fact, our first article was in April of 2020. We were talking about breakdowns in agriculture supply chains, which would happen due to COVID. And then lo and behold, it started to happen we attended our first conference. We started to establish a network of academics around the country who were interested in solving this problem. You know, for better or worse, we just have a huge Rolodex now of names and numbers, people we know that we can talk to about any subject matter within agriculture. Oh, um, wow. 
the next year, 2021, is when we started to support the first units being deployed, developing an ag assessment. It was also the first year that we started to attend joint special ops university and to do some training with the special ops community. And it seems like all of those things have led us to the point where we are today, where we're starting to generate more and more pull for ag-related services. And that's the same sort of methodology I would endorse for other squads, other, other teams, other ASIs within the 38 Gulf community. You have to generate the relevant content so combatant commanders know what value it is that you offer. If you don't have that, if you can't explain it, then you're not at the point to be able to actually offer support because you won't get the platform to do so. Yeah. So civil affairs has struggled with filling specialty slots like FXSBs, and it's hard to do in one region. So do you think that it would improve the odds of either expanding out the FXSBs across all the KCOMs and making it a network? Or do you think it would be better building out localized KCOM FXSBs and then keep recruiting to fill up all those slots? I'm not sure how this works. And I just wanted to get your opinion on it. Um, my motivation has been for the last few years, just fill the slots with qualified people any way that I can, because I just felt that if we didn't fill the slots, then at some point, the units would be dissolved. We're closing in on about 50% fill. What has been particularly challenging, though, is that the personnel that you get do not always match the, the slots that you have. There are 18 ASIs. I can't speak for the other three KCOMs, but within the 353, we only have six ASIs identified within our ranks. Sure. So trying to get the right mix of personnel, it's definitely a challenge. At the moment, we have a number of people that are inbound that while we do have 38 golf slots, we don't have the right ASI. So I don't right. know what that means for MOSQ for these personnel or when they would be eligible for promotion. Right, which is always another issue. But you're seeing growth in FXSBs, right? We're seeing definite growth in recruitment. We used to only do branch transfers. And then two years ago, they started to do direct appointments. And starting in November of last year, we also have a pathway for enlisted that are well-qualified and want to be FXSP officers. It's just, you almost have to be lucky <laughs> to build these teams or be able to recruit from the civilian force and attract them. Well, I will say that the, the team is quite small. It's only, it's only five people um, yeah. have a vacancy right now, but um, I, I don't have a good answer for that. The problems where we know we can make an impact, the demand on the team is quite high, but there's, there's a lot of missions that we just, we just can't do. We don't have the expertise. Here's a quick question. How do you or your team attract the right people to the job? If we can't fill it on our team and we can't feel, fill it locally with the KCOM, then I, you know, I have to say most times I don't know that the, the problems get resolved. Right. Is there 
any type of targeted outreach to colleges or professional organizations to promote being a civil affairs officer? I have seen other KCOMs setting up the MOU for public utilities and water. So basically, uh, like somebody that that handles uh, civilian water infrastructure or sewerage systems, they set up uh, an MOU with the organization in Milwaukee called the Water Council. And then after that MOU was established, they worked with some local universities uh, in Wisconsin to be able to identify people that could uh, join different units. And that was led by one officer in particular, Colonel Kuyenga, out of the 352. Okay. Cool. Cool. And it was successful. Yes, it's been very successful. It's just, it's it's always a chicken or the egg problem. You need to have the right resources to get people interested in joining, or you have to have uh, the right people interested in joining, and then you need the right resources. But in both cases, you need the people, you need the resources. Yeah. Well, I think I've used up about an oh, hour and a half, almost two hours with you. <laughs> No problem. I mean, I'm hopeful you can pull something out of this. and I can. All right. Well, thank you very much. And All right. Thanks for this, Jack. Thanks again for listening to the 1CA podcast. Our show is a production of the Civil Affairs Association. If you're interested in coming on the show or guest hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have that email and the Civil Affairs Association website in the show notes. And to all our folks in diplomacy, development, defense, and operations, working on ground to build those relationships with partner nations and their people, thank you for all you do. This is your host, Jack Gaines. Until next time, have a great week.